When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you for tuning in and I hope this podcast is helping to fill the void while football is taking a break. On today's episode, we'll start with the news around Europe, Serie A, and Napoli. Then we'll do some transfer talk, and we received a few excellent transfer questions from one of our listeners, Eddie, about Callejon and Tonali, so we'll respond to those. And in part three, we'll revisit another classic Napoli match. So getting right into it with the news, the German Bundesliga was set to resume on May 16th, or so we thought. On Saturday, we got a report that two players in Dynamo Dresden, who are in the Zweistliga, which is the second division of German football, have tested positive. So the entire club is now in quarantine and their match against Hanover will likely be postponed. So we'll see if that impacts the start date of the Bundesliga. In Spain, three players from the Primera Division and two from the Segunda have tested positive. Now La Liga president Javier Tebas was on Spanish TV station Vamos and he actually said that eight positive cases have been found including staff. But they were actually expecting 25 to 30 tests to be positive out of the 2,500 they completed. And Tebas is hoping for La Liga to resume on June 12th, but that really depends on the outbreak. He also noted that La Liga is looking for creative ways to interact with their fans during matches since they won't be attending in person. In England, a third Brighton player has now tested positive for COVID-19, and this report came a day before the EPL clubs are scheduled to meet to discuss the resumption of the league. And in Turkey, one player and one staff member on Besiktas has tested positive as well. And the Turkish Super League is scheduled to resume on June 12th. And the country is planning on hosting the Champions League final in Istanbul in August. Moving on to Serie A, 
The confirmed cases is now up to 11. We have one player at Torino, three players and three staff at Fiorentina, and four players at Sampdoria. Now these reports have prompted many to plead for football to be ended, so I want to talk a bit about this debate, and full disclosure, at least at the moment, I'm of the view that play should resume. Now this is obviously not an easy decision, and I've seen good arguments on both sides. The arguments for cancelling the season include that if we do resume play, we'd be squeezing in a lot of games in a very short period of time, and players really haven't been training for the last two months, so that means that they are far more likely to get hurt. Another argument is that all the resources that are being used to test these players and keep them healthy could be better used for the public. Also, some feel it's not right to force players to do something they don't necessarily want to do. And if you think the league should be shut down for moral reasons, and I can't argue with you on that one, there is something very uncomfortable about the idea of players being forced to play in it. The idea of playing does have a bit of a Roman gladiator type of vibe to it. Mind you, a number of players have publicly expressed their desire to return, but there have been others who are opposed to it, including Brescia captain Daniele Gastaldello, who released a statement on behalf of himself and his teammates stating that they're afraid to resume play, particularly referring to the risk of injuries. And this was similar to a statement issued by Spanish club Ibar last week. Now, one argument I don't understand is that football should be cancelled simply because these players have tested positive or for fear of spreading the virus. The reason for the protocol and all of the testing before training is because we don't know what these players and staff have been up to. And I made this point on Twitter, which is that most of the people that tested positive were asymptomatic. So had it not been for the return of training, they probably wouldn't have been tested and could have been out spreading the virus. Now all of them are in quarantine. If we get a positive test after the players have returned to training while they're in controlled environments, then I think we probably do need to shut it down at that point. And that could well happen when you consider how many people are involved in the logistics of playing these matches. On the flip side, the main argument for resuming is for economic reasons. Many clubs are at risk of going bankrupt, which is fine for the rich owners and the players, but a lot of lower and middle income citizens are employed by these clubs and would be out of work. Another good argument is that football can be a welcome distraction for anyone that is in quarantine. Moving on, an emergency meeting has been called for May 13th, and amongst the things to be discussed are TV rights. And on Sunday, Corriere dello Sport reported that Sky Sport, The Zone, and LFG have not made their sixth payment of 233 million euros, and that the broadcasters are asking for relief to the tune of 120 million euros if the season is completed, and 240 million euros if it is not. So these issues could well end up in the courts. Moving on to Napoli news, the entire squad has tested negative for COVID-19 and so the squad resumed training on Sunday. In true Gattuso fashion, Ringo showed up to Castel Volturno before anybody else and the first group to arrive was the goalkeepers. The second group was Demek, Husai, Luperto, Maximovic, Manolas, Mario Rui, Fabian, Loboca, Insigne, Alan, Politano and Zielinski. And the third group was Milik, Lozano, Koulibaly, Gulam, Malqui, Galeon, Mertens, Elmas, and Lorente. There was also some interesting transfer news this week. First, president of Spanish club Hetafe, Angel Torres, told Radio Marca that many clubs are interested in their players and that Napoli's president calls him every three days, referring to Napoli's supposed interest in Mark Cucurella. Napoli would respond on their official Twitter page, saying it's a scam, fake news, De Laurentiis doesn't even know who Getafe's president is and has never spoken about this Cucurella fellow. 
On the topic of transfers, two players that were linked to possible transfer swaps have picked up injuries. Luka Jovic has injured his foot, and I've seen different reports on this, one of them saying he fractured his heel and another saying he broke his toe. Also, Samuel Umtiti has injured his right calf, and I suppose both of these players could recover before the end of the transfer window, but at least for now that should put an end to these transfer rumors. Back to De Laurentiis, I previously reported that he purchased Merton's jersey at auction and that I thought that was kind of creepy. Well, ADL is making me eat my words. A few days ago was Merton's 33rd birthday and the club president returned the jersey to him as a birthday gift, which I actually thought was pretty cool when you think about what that jersey represents for the Belgian. And surely this was an attempt to build some goodwill with the player so that he can renew. A few quick stories before I close this segment. First, Amin Yunus was in the news, and the original report was that he called footballers stupid, which was odd, but when I read the full story, I realized that his words were taken out of context. In an interview with tonline.de, Yunus explained that there are a lot of people out there who take advantage of players and their ignorance when it comes to managing finances, and I don't think that's a particularly offensive statement. A lot of players are still teenagers when they start their professional careers, so I don't think he's wrong. The statement that was taken out of context was his view that players are helped to stay stupid and that players have people to do everything for them, which is a risk if those people don't have their best interests at heart. A better translation probably would have been that people help players stay ignorant. Finally, I'll end on a positive note. Congratulations are in order for Giovanni Di Lorenzo and his partner Clarissa Franchi, who welcomed a baby girl into the world, and as loyal Napoli Tans, they named her Azzurra. Okay, so like I mentioned at the top, we received two questions from one of our listeners, Eddie, and they're both transfer-related, so today's transfer talk will respond to those questions. First, Eddie says he sees speculation for Mertens, Koulibaly, Alan, Milik, and Fabian, but Callejon's contract terminates at the end of the season without much media attention. Any word on his future? So the only reliable information we have is comments made by Callejon's agent, Garcia Quillon, on Radio Kiss Kiss in late April, where he said, Jose's renewal, situation is still on standby, we have to wait more, everything is stopped. My feelings, at the moment I don't have any, and I won't have any in the future either, because only the facts count, and there are no evolutions. Now that same agent said back in September that Napoli had made an initial offer last summer, but it didn't satisfy the player, and Calione can sign an extension, but they don't want to mess about. Apparently, Napoli have made at least one more offer since then, and it was rejected as well, so the natural conclusion to draw is that the player will move on, which is unfortunate because he really has served the club well. Now, it could be that the club lowballed him, but they did sign Politano in January, and last episode I suggested that Lozano could be an option on the wing as well, so if Napoli made an offer after January, it probably was an offer you would expect for a 33-year-old backup winger. 
The expectation now is that Callejon will return to his home country of Spain, and that's where the interest is coming from. Sevilla and their football director Monchi seem to be the frontrunners, but Valencia and Atletico Madrid are also interested. I've also seen reports that Fenerbahce are interested, so we'll see where he ends up. But again, it looks like he will not be wearing the Azzurri next season. Eddie's second question was, What do you think are the chances Napoli leaps over Inter and Juventus for Tonali? Latest rumors push it. The price will be high, as is the reward, but there should be plenty of funds if Fabian and Alan move. So first, I personally don't think that Napoli will sell Fabian, but I do think they will sell Koulibaly, so they should have somewhere between 100 and, let's say, 130 million euros to play with. Now, what are the chances Napoli leaps over Juve and Inter? I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I'm going to say slim to none. If I had to put a number on it, I'd say 5 to 10%, and I'll explain why. First, as Eddie pointed out, there's the price. Now, the original reports were that Chilino wanted about 14 million euros, plus half the proceeds of a future sale. So if, for example, Juventus bought him, and then in a few years sold him for 100 million euros, Brescia would get the original 14 million, plus 50 million from the sale. Now, I can't see anyone agreeing to do that, and the reports now are that Chilino is asking for the 50 million euros outright. Now, Chilino, in fact, is the reason why Napoli is linked to Tonali in the first place. He gave an interview with Tutto Sport in mid April, where he talked about how Tonali loved Gattuso, though in fairness, he did say he loved him as a player, and he's not sure how he feels about Gattuso as a manager. Chilino also said that he's a romantic and would like to sell Tonali to Roma or to Napoli, but that will hardly happen. So at 50 million euros, the question for Napoli becomes, do they want to spend close to half of their gains on the young Regista, which, by the way, would immediately become Napoli's most expensive signing only a year after they set that record when they acquired Irving Lozano? And I don't think they do. Napoli just signed Diego Demme in January, and they're very happy with how he's played. They also brought in Stanislav Loboka, who plays the same position, and the two of them cost Napoli close to 40 million euros. I don't think it would make sense to spend another 50 million euros on one position when only one of those three can play at a time in Gattuso's 4-3-3 system. And we're not like Juventus who can afford to have two 40-plus million euro players for one spot. There's no questioning how talented Tonali is, but a club must always balance the present and the future, and Tonali is an investment in the future, but in the current situation, I think those funds are better needed, more to withstand the financial impact of COVID-19. I mentioned in the last episode that Napoli stand to lose the highest proportionate share of the value of their players as a result of COVID-19. And if Napoli were to make a big splash, I think they'd be more inclined to spend that money on a striker, given the uncertainty around Milik and Mertens. Meanwhile, Juventus and Inter have a lot more to gain from Tonali. Juventus has a glaring weakness in the midfield, Pjanic has not been very good this year, and though Juve looked much stronger with Bentancur in the lineup, I think Tonali would be an upgrade, and like I said, they can afford to bench a player like Bentancur. And Inter play a 3-5-2, so Conte has more room in the starting lineup, if you will, for Tonali. Plus, Matias Vicino is good, but not great, so I think they'd happily replace him. So I think both of those clubs are going to push pretty hard for Tonali. Finally, even if Napoli were willing to fork out the 50 million euros, would Tonali choose Napoli over Inter or Juve, who I'm sure would match that offer? And I think the answer is no, for two reasons. First, 
as has been well documented in the media. Tonali is from the north. He's from Lodi, which is only half an hour away from Milano and two hours away from Torino. So for either club, he'll be very close to home, which I think is especially important for young players. And second, both Juventus and Inter will be playing in the Champions League next year, while Napoli will at best be in the Europa League, and it's pretty much every player's dream to play in the Champions League. So for all those reasons, I do not think Napoli will be signing Tonali. But thank you, Eddie, for sending in those questions. I'm happy to answer any questions you or anyone else might have about Napoli or anything else. And that'll do for part two. In part three, we'll review another classic Napoli match. So today's classic match is the first meeting between Napoli and Milan in the 1989-1990 season played at the Stadio San Paolo. In the late 80s and early 90s, this was one of the biggest rivalries in Italian football. And anyone who watched the Maradona documentary knows that, at least in the football world, the North hardly considered Napoli a part of Italy. Ryu Spaeth captured it really well in his piece for the New Republic entitled The Tragedy of Diego Maradona. He says that Napoli is, quote, a city that is taunted by the fans of the northern teams for being backward. You are the shame of the whole of Italy, they chant. They unfurl banners that say, hello, cholera sufferers, depicting Naples as a godforsaken capital of diseased outcasts, end quote. So the Milan-Napoli rivalry really represented well the dichotomy that existed in Italy at the time. In the eight seasons from 86-87 to 93-94, Napoli and Milan combined to win six Scudetti, and during that time, Milan also won consecutive European Champions Clubs Cups, and Napoli won a UEFA Cup. Of course, Napoli won their first ever Scudetto in 86-87. That same year, Silvio Berlusconi purchased AC Milan, and in the summer of 87, he appointed Arrigo Sacchi as his new manager. He also signed the Dutch trio of Marco van Basten, Ruud Gullit, and Frank Rijkaard, Van Basten and Gullit joined in 87, and Rijkaard in 88. But Napoli were still a very strong club, and they also improved their attack when they signed Careca to complete the Magica trio, along with Maradona and Giordano. The strong play that saw Napoli win the Scudetto the previous year carried over into this season. Napoli were top of the table from match day 2 all the way through to match day 27. At the end of match day 27, Napoli had a 4-point lead in the Scudetto race over Milan, which was a big lead when you consider that wins were only worth two points and the season was only 30 games long. And then things got a little controversial. I first read this story in a piece Dave Taylor wrote for Football Italia a while back, but apparently just about every citizen of Napoli bet with the Toronero, which is underground gambling, that their club would repeat as champions. So the Camorra, which is the Italian mafia, started sending warning signs to players to show them what would happen if they kept winning. So Maradona's car was smashed up, and Salvatore Bani suffered a couple of burglaries, amongst other things, and other horrific acts were done to other players. Napoli did not win any of their final matches, drawing one and losing the other four. Now, I watched a couple of those matches, and I don't think Napoli intentionally lost them. 
The first one I watched was in week 27 against Hellas Verona. Heading into that match, Napoli had a two-point lead over Milan. Verona was a mid-table team at the time, but they had a decent squad, which included a few ex-Napoli players, including goalkeeper Giuliani and defender Giuseppe Volpecina. They also had a couple of modern-day coaches playing for them in Stefano Pioli and Beppe Iacchini. The Azzurri were the better squad in the first half, and they took a 1-0 lead into the break. But Verona were clearly the better squad in the second half, and after they equalized, the game opened up and both sides missed chances. Caraca came very close to putting Napoli ahead in the final 10 minutes, but he just missed the far post. But the way the game this went, as a Napoli supporter, I would have been content with the draw away from home. That same week was the Derby della Madonnina, which Milan won 2-0, so Napoli's lead was reduced to 1 point. And then the following week, the two clubs played each other. Milan won that match as well, sweeping the season series. And I watched this match as well, and I don't think Napoli threw this game either. It was an intense match, both sides were going for him, Maradona scored an amazing free kick, but he was ultimately undone by Rude Gullit, who assisted on Milan's second and third goals. And the run Gullit made on the third goal was just incredible. For the listeners that are from my generation, think of runs that Kaká used to make, where he would just kind of glide past defenders. That's pretty much what Gullit did there, and in the end, Napoli simply got outplayed that day. I haven't watched the other matches, but judging from the highlights at least, I don't think Napoli intentionally lost those matches either. What was very curious though was that Maradona did not play in the final two matches against Fiorentina and Sampdoria. So even though they were trying to win, they kind of handicapped themselves in those two matches. And the funny thing is Milan drew their final two matches, but with two point wins, Napoli would have needed at least a win and a draw in their final two matches to win the Scudetto. So you have to wonder if that would have happened with Maradona in the lineup. Now whether you buy into that story or not, Berlusconi's revamped Milan squad won its first Scudetto in nine years, and that was really the start of the Arrigo Sacchi dynasty. Now I'm not going to say too much about the 88-89 season as Inter won that Scudetto, but I will say three things. First, that season Serie A was expanded to 18 clubs, so the season was 34 games long. Second, of the two encounters between the two clubs, Napoli won 4-1 at the San Paolo, and in that match, Maradona scored one of the greatest goals in his career. Pallone, carica ancora, si allarga sulla sinistra, davanti a Semussi, poi la sfera servita a Crippa, dentro per Maradona, parte Maradona, davanti a Galli, colpo in testa di Maradona, ed è gol! Il gol di Maradona! Il gol di Maradona! Grande gol! So I'm sure some of you already know which goal this was, but for those who don't, Massimo Cripa played a high looping ball over the top to Maradona who was in alone. Galli came out to challenge, but when he realized Maradona was going to beat him to the ball, he just stopped at the top of the box. Now Maradona probably could have taken a touch and dribbled around Galli, but instead from at least 25 yards out he torqued his neck and smashed a header over Galli. The ball only needed two bounces before it crossed the goal line. And this is probably the second most memorable Maradona header ever. And what was most impressive was the power he generated. Most strong headers harness the power of the cross, but this was essentially a dead ball. In the return fixture that year, Milan and Napoli drew nil-nil at the San Zero. The last thing I'll say about the 87-88 season is that, though neither of those clubs won the Scudetto, Napoli finished runners-up for the second consecutive season, and Milan finished third, so they both still performed pretty well. So that brings us to the 89-90 season in which our feature match took place. This match was played in week 7, so the season was still young, 
but given the recent success of both sides, it was still a very important match. Alberto Bigon's Napoli squad lined up in the usual 4-4-2 with a sweeper and a diamond midfield. Giuliano Giuliani was in goal. Giovanni Francini played sweeper. Ciro Ferrara played left back. Marco Baroni played right back. And Luca Fuzzi was the stopper. Alemão was the holding midfielder. Fernando de Napoli played on the left. Massimo Cripa on the right. And Maradona in the trequartista. And up top was the usual duo of Caraca and Carnavale. And a few notables on the bench were Massimo Mauro and Gianfranco Zola. Arrigo Sacchi's Milan lined up in a double 6 4 4 2 formation. Giovanni Galli played in goal. The back four was Alessandro Costacurta, Franco Baresi, Filippo Galli, who started in place of Milan's regular center back, Paolo Maldini, and Mauro Tassotti. The two holding midfielders in the double six were Carlo Ancelotti and Frank Reichardt, which is not a bad duo at all. Angelo Colombo played on the left side, and Alvarico Evani played on the right wing. And up top were Stefano Borgonova and Giovanni Stropa. Marco Van Basten was not in the lineup. He made his first appearance of the season the following week. So as was often the case, Napoli opened the scoring early in the match, this time in the 19th minute. Milan had just cleared a corner kick. Fuzzi, who was the last man back just inside his own half, took one touch to control the ball. Then his second touch was a perfect long ball to pick out Maradona's run on the left wing. Maradona played a cross into the box, Careca flicked on, and Carnevale finished. After the goal, Milan began to take over, but Napoli defended well, and Milan rarely penetrated the back line, often settling for shots from distance. Ancelotti nearly equalized from 30 yards out, but his attempt would bend just wide of the goal. Evani and Colombo's long-range efforts also missed the goal. And as usual, Maradona was on the receiving end of a number of challenges, though in this match the tackles were not malicious, and they weren't even professional fouls just to stop him. Maradona had such quick feet and he was so good at touching the ball into open space that defenders were often late on their tackles. And that's exactly what led to the second goal. Giuliani played a drop kick into the Milan half. Careca won the aerial duel with Costa Curta to get the ball to Maradona. Maradona controlled with his first touch and left just enough of the ball for Galli to think he could get there. But just before Galli lunged, Maradona touched into space, resulting in a foul. Maradona took the free kick, of course, picking out the run of Carnavale from the left side of the box. The ball was just out of the reach of Colombo, and Carnavale did really well, first to beat Filippo Galli to the ball, and then to get enough power on the header while falling, to put the ball over keeper Giovanni Galli toward the far post. And that goal came just before the halftime whistle, so Napoli went into the break up 2-0. Napoli è bellissima, c'è un pubblico caldo, entusiasmante, e, e c'è una spontaneità, una simpatia, una cordialità nei, nei, nei napoletani che è commovente. Riconosce anche che questo Napoli fino adesso ha meritato il 2-0? Ah, direi di sì perché ha fatto, è, stato, è stato per tre volte pericoloso nell'occasione dei due gol e in un'altra occasione con una bellissima giocata di Maradona. Ecco, speriamo che adesso assisteremo a un altro secondo tempo, a un secondo tempo molto bello come questo primo, questo primo tempo. Sì, no? speriamo. Io non l'ho trovato bellissimo questo primo tempo, anche se il Milan non ha giocato, non ha demeritato, eh, diciamo fino alla tre quarti. Eh, il Napoli secondo me ha accusato una certa stanchezza, ho visto alcune imprecisioni, non ho visto il pressing, per cui credo che sconti la serata lunga, difficile e stressante di mercoledì. So that was Silvio Berlusconi at halftime. He talked about the atmosphere at the San Paolo and how the Napoli fans were enthusiastic, warm and cordial. 
When asked about the scoreline, he agreed that Napoli deserved the lead and said that Napoli could have had a third with the play of Maradona. And when he was asked if he thought Milan could come back in the second half, he said he thinks Milan can come back as Napoli looked a little bit tired after playing on Wednesday, referring to Napoli's UEFA Cup match against Sporting. But Berlusconi was wrong. The second half was much more of the same. Napoli continued to defend and Milan continued to press, but never really looked that dangerous. In the 84th minute, Maradona put the game away. Massimo Mauro, who had come in for Carnavale, intercepted a pass on the left wing to spring Maradona, who was clear to the goal. Galli came out to challenge. Maradona faked the shot, which got Galli to drop, before placing a delicate chip over the keeper and into the back of the goal. And that's how this one would end, with Napoli winning three goals to nil. Maradona was interviewed after the match while wearing Franco Barresi's jersey. Diego, ogni volta che segni un gol, una maglia nuova? Questa è un grandissimo giocatore. Io penso che Franco Barresi è il massimo come difensore, per quello questo è un ricordo che me lo porterò per tutta la vita. So here Maradona was asked if he gets a different jersey every time he scores. Maradona said yes, but this one is very special. Franco Barresi is probably the best defender in the world, and he's going to remember that day for the rest of his life, which is a pretty cool story. A few comments before I close this segment. Unlike the previous matches we've reviewed, this one was a more of a tactical battle. Not like the previous matches, it wasn't as high-paced with lots of long balls. This one was more about possession and passing. Earlier I mentioned this was week 7. Milan did get their revenge in the return leg at the San Siro on week 24, winning 3-0 as well. Milan had a much better squad in that one. Andrea Pazzali played in goal. Pazzali had joined Milan from Ascoli in the summer and he started the year on the bench, but after Milan's unimpressive start to the season with four wins, two draws, and four losses, Galli was replaced by Pazzali as the number one. Paolo Maldini and Roberto Donadoni returned to their starting roles at center back and right wing respectively and Borgonova and Stropa were replaced by Daniele Massaro and Marco Van Basten up top. Back to Dave Taylor, he told another off-the-field story in his piece, but this time it was one that helped Napoli win the title. This story was about what happened on match day 31 against Atalanta. Napoli and Milan were neck and neck in the Scudetto race. In the 77th minute, with the score still tied 0-0, Alemão lined up to take a corner kick, and then suddenly he drops to the ground. And what happened was a fan had thrown a 50 lira coin from the stands, which is about the size of an American or Canadian quarter. And the coin hit Alamao in the head hard enough to draw blood. Alamao was down for a while and then he was replaced by Gianfranco Zola. Now the match ended nil-nil, but then two days later, after a meeting of the sports tribunal, Napoli was awarded a 2-0 win. That same day, Milan drew to Bologna 1-1, which was also controversial as Bologna had scored a clear goal, but it wasn't given. There was a bit of a scramble in front of the goal, and at least for the referee, there was some doubt as to whether the ball crossed the line, but the replay showed that it clearly did. So the Napoli win and the Milan draw gave Napoli a two-point lead ahead of Milan in the table, with only three matches to play. Now, the tribunal's decision may have been controversial, but even if the draw was upheld, Napoli would have still won the Scudetto by one point, and if Bologna's goal was given, Napoli would have won the Scudetto by two points. In any event, Napoli went on to win their second and final Scudetto in club history. So that's going to do it for episode 8. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give it a 5-star rating. I'd really appreciate that. As always, if you have any questions or if you want me to focus on anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5. 
or you can find the podcast at Fortsonopoly Pod. If you're looking for some reading material, you can find my work at World Football Index. It's been a pleasure. Until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.